Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello and welcome to another edition of Paleo Jam. I'm Michael Mills, your host for uh, Paleo Jam. And today um, I have two guests, Dr. Aaron Caymans. Hello, Aaron. G'day, Mike. And uh, Fraser Brown. How you going, Fraser? Hello, Mike. Thanks for having us. Um, so, uh, paleontology, it's often, people often, when I talk to folk about paleo, it's like, oh, dinosaurs. And then... They often then say, oh, dinosaurs, and they say, oh, tell us about the bones and the teeth. But we're going to go somewhere else today, and we might touch on dinosaurs, but we might not. But what we're going to talk about today is the fossils that are not bones, um, what we call trace fossils. And there's a reason for that, and that's because they're really quite interesting, um, and they have stories to tell us. So what we're going to do first is each of us will tell us what they've brought and um, Dr. Caymans, uh, we will start with you. What did you bring? So today I've actually brought along a special type of thing called a bromelite, which I reckon is a word that Michael hasn't heard before. I have not heard bromelite, no. A bromelite is actually any kind of fossil related to the digestive system. And the most famous one that you probably recognise is a coprolite, which is what we have here. And in fact, some of them are quite amusingly shaped. Mm. So, bromelite is like theropod, and <laughs> coprolite is the T-Rex to the yeah. bromelite. Yeah, so we have, you know, we have regurgitolites for those that represent fossil vomit <laughs> spewalite yeah. yes vomitolite cholalites for those in the colon still so yeah there's a whole range of are there terms. any others of these that from other regions there are but i can't remember the names <laughs> because primarily what we deal with are the coprolites yeah. yes all right and we will we'll talk about coprolites um some more um in more detail because they are fascinating things and can tell us Lots and lots of different things. Okay, Fraser, what have you brought? I have brought uh, a different kind of trace fossil. This is rather than what happens at the end of the digestion system, but at the beginning. Uh, I have a bite mark, which is on the uh, main foot bone, the main toe bone of an extinct kind of giant kangaroo. And these marks are what we suspect to either be a bite mark or a cut mark. And this is one of the fun parts of trace fossils, learning to tell apart the different agents that make those marks. Yeah, and that's 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 part of the, the research you're doing, isn't it? To find out, well, who who or what made the marks on this thing? Mm. That's ultimately uh, one of two big parts that ichnology can answer. It's behaviour of what animals are doing, but also what actual animal is making those marks. Yep, and what I've brought, I have brought a footprint. Well, okay, it's a replica of a footprint. Mm. It's a replica of a footprint from... Um, Lark Quarry in uh, near Winton um, and what I love about the footprint is that it's it's a mould of one of 3,000 footprints that are on that site and 
Uh, it's the dinosaur national dinosaur stampede monument. Now there's some conversations mm. uh, about was it a stampede or wasn't it. Um, there's a Professor Flint song about dinosaur stampede, and I've always say to people, it's like, yeah, but it doesn't mention Lark Quarry in the song, so there would have been a dinosaur stampede somewhere in the Mesozoic. Mm. Um, but what's interesting with this fossil footprint, it's the front part of the toes. Mm. And that gives you some information, doesn't it? I mean, Aaron, you, you, you work a lot in footprints too. Yeah. So I just want to just, just look at this footprint for a minute. So the front, clearly, the, for whatever reason, the front part of the foot, you can see the back part, you can't. So what does that indicate? Uh, it can mean a range of different things. So we have to remember that the same foot can make a whole range of different shapes depending on the substrate, whether it's clay or sand, whether it's really sloppy mud or whether it's really firm. But generally speaking, if we're looking at deep toe impressions, that might indicate to us that the animal was moving faster. So rather than the whole foot being put down on the ground, which we see more during a walk, it might be moving up more onto its toes as it's picking up speed. Yeah, and we can, we can, we can walk along the beach, because beaches are a great place for where people and, and animals leave their footprints. And you can walk along a beach and you can, you can do your own kind of research in terms of what Firstly, what animals are there, um, but also how fast a person is travelling, whether they're walking, whether they're running, so that if you see, I guess, more of the heel and the toe, the, 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 the assumption is that they're, they're walking, but if you see a slightly different shape... And also the be depth running. of the print can tell mm. us something in that regard too. Mm. And even what we call the deformation characteristics, so the shapes in the sediment around the footprint can tell us things about what the animal was doing as it was moving across that yeah all right so um what i'm really keen to do with 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 the objects that we brought in is is to talk some more detail about those specific objects so um because we've got fossilized bite marks or scratch marks which is fascinating like like a fossilized bite mark just the what just just the very very, idea of it it's a very dynamic form of trace all the trace fossils are. There's uh, Aaron's sort of touched on this a little bit already, but there's sort of three prongs to uh, leaving a trace fossil. There's the anatomy of the animal that's going to leave a particular kind of mark. There's the behaviour that changes the way in which it's using that anatomy. And then there's the substrate in which it's interacting with the environment. So that might be, uh, in the case of a bite mark, uh, the behaviour is going to change the way the animal's using its teeth, the anatomy, to leave a mark in the substrate, a bone or a piece of meat or something else in this environment. Because it is, I mean, it is, it's that interaction, isn't it? Yes. You're seeing in those marks an interaction between two different animals and the job of the paleontologist is to try and reveal and, and explore and understand what that actual interaction might mm. have looked like. And mm. I guess that's what we see with trace fossils, isn't it? Isn't it? We, we, we often talk about the stories of paleontology and you see, you know, we know what a T-Rex kind of looks like because you see all the bones, but what did it do? Mm. And that's one of my favourite things about trace fossils is that they are permanent records of an animal's behaviour. So we can make predictions from a skeleton on what we think an animal could do, but a footprint or a bite trace is telling us what that animal did. Mm. It's incontrovertible proof 
that an animal was acting in a certain way and it reveals aspects of an animal's lifestyle that we're never going to get from studying the skeleton mm. yeah and it's a it's a it's a moment isn't it it's a moment in time whether it's a, a bunch of footprints or or or, or teeth marks or a, a poop i mean the, the <laughs> i mean find i've done a whole show about coprolites and one of the really fascinating things about coprolites is trying to work out whose poop is whose and there's a there's a, a, a site that talks about this coprolite being this is a t-rex poop and it's big enough to have come out of a t-rex it's around about the same age it's in the same place and it's clearly of a carnivore so it's possibly i mean how far can we go we can say it's possibly a t-rex poop coming mm. but there might also be a large predator that we don't know yet Absolutely. from that area the, the context is super important when you're evaluating this and as you've alluded to already it's easier to tell if it's a carnivore because there are usually bits of herbivore in it yeah if it's a herbivore chances are that what it was eating is not necessarily going to preserve and fossilize because we've quite often got different preservational conditions favoring plant versus bone preservation. It's uncommon to see both preserved. So we might have the shape of the turd preserved beautifully, but the contents have been completely replaced. So in, in the case of some of the ones that I've got here, we've got actually some tiny little voids in the coprolite, which represent the spaces that the vegetation occupied and it's since rotted away. So we know that there were small plant stems in this turd, but that's about all that we can say. For the audio listeners, Aaron is very delicately holding the turd aloft and gesturing quite enthusiastically. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of if you want to if you want to if you want a visual picture, think of that scene in The Lion King where <laughs> where he's holding the child. Yeah. Um there, I mean, there have been some interesting things. So there, there's a, a couple of years ago, some research came out where they found a new species of beetle from the Triassic inside a coprolite. Mm. I mean, well, if you think about it, that's like automatically burying or snap fossilizing yeah. the organism involved. It's encased in something that is going to help facilitate its fossilization. If the poo survives, there's a good chance that whatever's mm. in it is entombed straight away. I'm not sure it's how I want to spend eternity. Though. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> so, um, um, the, other, the, other, the other interesting thing I was reading recently is, is that up until 10 years ago or more, we thought that grasses, the first grasses, appeared about 55 million years ago. And then um, they found a poop from about 66 million years ago um, and inside that poop were um, grass-like phytoliths mm. microscopic pieces of silica that they reckon could only have come from grass cells in Cretaceous dinosaur or well at least Cretaceous coprolites mm. so poop has pushed back our understanding of when grass was a thing yeah. which then has a significant implications for understanding prehistoric environments, doesn't it? Absolutely. And the closer we're able to tie in the coprolite that's left behind with the organism that made it, the more that we can flesh out that particular environment. And in some cases, 
like those out at Lake Calabonna in Central Australia, we've got gut contents still in the position of the gut as well as they're not even coprolites. They're still the bundles of plant mm. that this animal has excreted. So this poor animal is in the middle of doing its thing and it dies. Yep. Middle of lunch, yeah. Middle of, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's right. I think, I think what we're touching on here as well is that it's very important to have multiple uh, sources of accumulation in the fossil record, different ways of preserving things. Because sometimes the set of conditions that will preserve a footprint, say, are not uh, conducive to preserving bone material. So you get a whole sort of set of ecosystems that are lost unless you have a trace fossil record and vice versa. And one other important point of that is that think about how many times you have chewed a piece of food. How many poos have you taken in your lifetime? How many steps have you walked versus how many skeletons you have made? Mm. This is true, and and it's it's it, and it's also it, it, as you were talking, it reminded me of of that idea of understanding what happens to organisms in a rainforest, like a modern rainforest. Mm. You die, you get recycled pretty quickly, so the likelihood of becoming fossilized, either as a footprint or as an organism in a rainforest, is pretty low. So the fossil record, I think, this is a, something that a lot of people don't understand. Or, or don't know is is the fossil record is skewed and incomplete and will always be that way mm. yep. and another aspect of trace fossils as well that doesn't work in their favor is that the traces are often preserved in a way that means that or sorry they're all often more exposed to erosion they break down more easily a footprint can be wiped away really easily yeah. much more easily than a bone for example so there's a higher chance of a skeleton surviving in the fossil record but the sheer number of traces that a given organism makes sort of works in its favor to balance that out mm. so fraser you're looking at these marks on this bone how do you how do you begin to work out what they were do you do you do you say do you have the teeth of a potential predator and a, and a clay thing and you say what happens if i scratch that on there and i don't know what, what how do you what what's the process a good thing about trace fossils is that they can be very fun like that sometimes it is as simple as let's just have a look at some teeth and see what sort of marks they make um but that would depend on how the chew is yeah. done there's a lot of assumptions uh, the, you, there's things about like the actual biomechanics of the thing. How strong of a bite is something making? What is it biting into? What's the density of the bone? What's the angle of it? Is there something getting in the way? It's very, very tricky, but it's very, very fun as well. So let's say you have a, uh, a nice clean piece of bone, like a, a nice femur, the main leg bone or something, and you've got a what looks like a straight line that sort of wanders a little bit across its surface you can make certain assumptions about what sort of animals were feeding on that, say. Uh, so if you know in the ecosystem what animals are there, that's already some of your work done for you. So in Australia, uh, say in the Pleistocene, there are four or five different types of main predator. Crocodiles, you've got uh, monitor lizards, you've got dasyurids, uh, which includes things like uh, quolls and Tasmanian devils. There's also thylacine, and then you've got the big marsupial predator, which is also extinct, Thylacoleo. Uh, they have different kinds of teeth, 
And so the different shapes of teeth and the different behaviours they make will leave different kinds of marks. The teeth of, uh, say, a Tasmanian devil are pointed and they have cusps on them that are quite distinctive. Uh, Thylacoleo is even weirder, where it's got uh, essentially a pair of garden shears for teeth. And so if you know what sort of marks the garden shears make and you know what sort of marks the pointed ones make, you are able to tell them apart. So you went to a butcher shop, got a bunch of bones and some garden shears, (laughs) and you're cracking them on to... Not, Not quite, quite yet. Yeah, no. that'll be fun. We do do something. We do do. We do something like that sim, uh, in uh, some of our paleo classes, uh, where we shatter femurs, for example, of different kinds of weathering to see uh, how they break down. Of dead animals. Of dead animals. Yeah. We should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, students that are submitted. Late. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, but but, but I suppose because you you can you can work with current modern materials, science, yeah, modern material. Um, and you can, I suppose you can, you can, if you if you were looking at an animal that had similar teeth to an African lion, mm. you could look at the imprints that an African lion makes. Because one of the things that, that that paleontologists use is is comparing things from now mm. with things from the past. Yeah, comparing anatomy. It's one yeah. of the fundamentals of uh, paleontology. And yeah. this is and one of the really important things in. Uh, examination of trace fossils is making sure we have that library of examples from the recent past or even the living world to compare and contrast. So it can be as simple as how do different substrates respond when a foot is placed on them? Or it can be how do different materials respond when an animal bites on it? Mm -hmm. But another aspect we need to look at as well is are there any other processes that can lead to those same marks? So do, does a rock rubbing across a bone, mm. does the growth of a fungal tendril or a plant root leave a mark that is different from what a tooth might leave behind? Mm. Which they absolutely do, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're, hence the challenge. Mm. Um, and it's interesting when you talk about the different substrates. I mean, you, again, if, if you go down to the beach, you can, you can walk along... Where, where, where you have the dry sand at one end mm. and then you have the really squishy sand and then the sand is kind of just right and a little and so you can do an experiment you can walk up and along the beach you can run up and down the beach and you can see what happens with your footprints mm. as you go along the way um some allosaurus bones um mm. came up a couple of years ago um and the question was do these bones indicate that Allosaurus was cannibalizing mm. its own kind? Um, and it was that then because conditions at the time were quite stressful and it's like, I've got nothing to ah, eat. Yes. Uncle Simon. Mm. <laughs> um, but then the question is like, well, how do you, how do you decide what's, what's cannibalism, how do you, cannibalism, or scavenging, it's like, mm. sorry, Uncle Peter's died, might as well make the most of him, yeah. it's what he would have wanted. Yeah. Is there a way of telling that? It's a bit of crime scene investigation. Yep. Um, most of the time, it's hard to tell whether an animal uh, has been killed and then fed upon, or just stumbled upon and then fed upon. The only general good sign of hunting is when a wound heals. So uh, you get uh, to jump to dinosaurs, for example. Uh, in America, there's some famous fossils of... Uh, hadrosaurs, so big duck-billed dinosaurs that have been fed upon by large theropods um, and then the bones that have been bitten into have refused and healed and so there's a um, 
oh, what's that called? Where you get um, deformation and stuff in. Uh, like a pathology. Yeah, path- yeah pathology. Pathology, yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, a sign of healing or, or weakness and deformity in the bone. So that is generally a very, very good sign that the animal is actually feeding on a living animal because the living animal escaped. Dead animals don't run away. Often. Probably not so much feeding as attacking. <laughs> yeah, Atta- yeah but flying attacking, around to be eaten. But attacking <laughs> with the intent to feed, yeah. yes. But it's a really good point. And the other thing is, as well, is that the location of the bite marks can give you a clue as to whether it's scavenging or attacking mm. in a in in a sense to try and disable the prey so is it somewhere where there is lots and lots of meat on the animal that's likely to be a feeding related activity or is it somewhere that's vulnerable on the animal like so a nipping at its heels or, or, yeah. or something yeah, yeah that doesn't really make sense for feeding but would make sense for mm. incapacitating the prey mm. and again that's the really cool thing isn't it it starts to give you those sense of of Okay, this animal hunted by, uh, and, and I've seen it in, in African wild dogs where they'll bite at the heels mm. or the, or the yeah. ankles of yeah. animals and incapacitate them that way. Mm. Yeah. And Fraser's actually been looking at some interesting stuff in relation yeah. to an Australian animal. On Absolutely. That so Thylacolio I mentioned earlier, which is, uh, was, thank goodness it not is, was a, a large marsupial predator. It was the largest uh, marsupial predator to ever be in Australia. Um, and it's a very, very strange animal. It's sort of what happened, what would happen if you took a possum, uh, gave it some dental work and sort of scaled it up by 10, something the like size that. size of a leopard. Yeah, yes, something like that. I think it's somewhere around like 120-ish kilograms at the max or something, with a bite force comparable to a fully grown African lion. Really, really big, strong animal. Um, and this has been, the diet of this animal has been speculated on for a while. Because they started off, they, they thought it was melons. Yeah, there was a, there's, well, there's some actually, fun papers like the, that. The earliest well, yes. supposition about its diet was actually that it was a meat eater. Yeah. It's from in, the, in the name. Thylacoleo carnifex, yes. can, uh, the pa- pouched flesh-eating lion. Um, it was described by Sir Richard Owen, uh, who's the same man who gave us the word dinosaur. Uh, but yes, some of his contemporaries, uh, there's a wonderful account by a man called Flower that says, no, you're clearly wrong. It's very similar to uh, the teeth of other uh, diprotodontid marsupials, so two front-toothed uh, marsupials. It's clearly feeding on melons or plant matter or something. Flower was wrong, but he touched on something very interesting, which is that Thylacoleo is descended from a typically plant-eating stock. So it's got a whole bunch of very, very weird features that don't really gel with most other predators. So what we've been trying to do is gather as much trace fossil evidence as we can of what this animal was doing, what it's feeding on. Uh, I mentioned the dental work. Thylacoleo uh, has its garden shear-like teeth. Uh, they're the premolars, so when you think about when you eat, you don't actually eat meat, say, with the canines, the pointed ones in your mouth. You actually push it to the side you use the, the sort of sharp ones just to the side. Those are your premolars. Thylacoleo was probably doing something similar, except those premolars were now like two and a half inches long, something like that, whatever that is in metric. Um, and they're very, very big with massive muscles behind them. So what we've been trying to do is find trace fossil evidence of what it was doing. And we find something reasonably interesting, which is that of the marks we have examined, most of them are on the limbs, which is different from what you usually see in large predators. Usually they feed on the the core skeleton and take out some of the guts. 
um, stuff like that. Or when they attack, they'll go for the throat, which is a fleshy area, so it doesn't usually leave a mark. But we don't see it. So mainly no. on the limbs of kangaroos as yes. well. Yes, and so it's is that, targeting kangaroos. Is, so are you seeing the, the, is that the hunting strategy you're seeing? Or are they just, do they just like, you, do you, oh, you have the wing or the leg? Oh, I'll have the leg, thanks. Possibly. It's not clear. I mean, there's not much wing on a kangaroo, really. But, but one <laughs> but, thing to bear in mind is that if you disable one foot of a kangaroo, it's only got one foot to get around. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. 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 It's a strange thing to do. As well, because kangaroos kick, <laughs> they kick like nothing else. Yeah, it's a strange like uh, unless it's running and you're trying to trip it up. It's an interesting, interesting thing. Yeah, and and in terms of the speed at which Thylacoleo could run, what do we know about that, Aaron? What's that got to do with trace? <laughs> footprints. They may have left footprints. Ah, which they have. Good segue. Um, we have some spectacular evidence of Thylacoleo moving extremely fast but not using a bounding gait or a gallop or something that we would expect to see in a placental carnivore that's moving quite fast. It's using kind of a pace, so it's still shifting its legs like it would. So it's like a power walker kind of thing, but mm. at tens of kilometres an hour. What? <laughs> My brain is... I've just pictured me like power walking, like in speed motion. Like, what? Yeah, it's a strange animal, and... We're still coming to grips with the locomotory repertoire, meaning the ways in which the limbs move during locomotion of various different extinct and extant still living marsupials. Because we essentially always go to or default to our placental mammal, European or you know American or African stock when we're looking for parallel examples. but. Mm. You can't really compare a marsupial with a placental mammal. They evolved from different stock and they move in quite different ways. It's even in the name of Thylacoleo, the marsupial lion. It's not a lion, really. No. It's, it's far not. from it. Yeah, yeah. It's um, um okay, we, we just got a few minutes to go. Um Might bring it back to dinosaurs. Maybe. Um because it's, it's footprints can tell us some really interesting things, can't they? And there's a study that came out in 2016 where um because the question is often asked especially with regard to the theropod dinosaurs and because of their because birds are theropods um did dinosaurs dance and there's some scrape marks that were found in the u.s um like five and six foot long patterns that are similar to the traces left behind of courting birds mm -hmm. I mean do, how certain and obviously there's the, the, some of its assumption in comparing yeah. what's now and what's in the past but how how certain can we be when we're looking at footprints for those kinds of claims well, you actually highlighted a really important point there it's similar to what we see in the traces left behind by bir some birds today that is critical in interpretation of that. Have we got a modern analogue that we can compare to it? Now, just the chance of finding traces, footprints, of an animal doing anything interesting are actually pretty low. Mm. They spend most of their time walking around not very fast. Mm. And so that's what most of the tracks that we find are. Even the odds of finding an animal running in its trackways are pretty low. But if we find enough, then we start to find that really evocative 
set of tracks that might tell us a little bit more about their behavior. So maybe we've got stampeding dinosaurs up at Lark Quarry in Queensland, maybe we don't. Maybe we've got this mating behavior displayed in these trackways. And it's only through very careful analysis of the trackway surface and the prints that are preserved there and careful consideration of different scenarios that we might be able to say what is or isn't happening. Mm. It goes back to what you said at the beginning, that these are single instances of the behaviour. How uh, do these reflect on the broader populations and how did they change through time? Yeah, and I guess that, that is an interesting question, isn't it? Is, 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 are we seeing something that's a one-off? Because we only find... I'm, I'm, you know, one of the most common questions I get asked is like, uh, what's, what's the biggest dinosaur that there was? Or what's the strongest? What's the biggest? It's like, well, we, I can tell you what the biggest individual is, probably. Mm. But if you were to pick a random elephant from Africa, that's not going to necessarily tell you how big elephants are as a species. Mm. So we've always, I suppose, got to be cognizant of the tiny little sample size. And it's stuff I think that you were talking about earlier, Aaron, where... You know, yes, that we've made lots of footprints in our lives and walked lots of steps, um, but the number of them that are fossilized. Um, but what they do tell us, even if they are a one-off, yeah, I think is a unique and fascinating moment. Yeah, the tantalizing in that way. Yeah, and and more than than just just the bones. Uh, I mean, just the bones and the teeth, which are all amazing and cool anyway. They really do give us a moment of insight. Absolutely. It's a fascinating field to work in. And thank you. On that note, thank you to you both of you for sharing your fascinating stories. Um, we'll be hearing more about your research as time goes on. Um, and um, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Mike. It's time to spread some paleo jam